You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon for our third and final episode in our series about the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, or CROI, which took place in February of 2023. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Um, so, you know, we covered a lot in the last couple podcasts on CROI, and hopefully, if you didn't get a chance to see, um, go to the meeting or even uh, view some of the uh, some of the information uh, online. Hopefully, you're getting a lot out of this. So, you know, we covered a lot of the prep data uh, and some of the plenaries. Uh, we also did the cabopivirine data in the last uh, in the previous editions. Um, now, I thought I would round out this section kind of with like a miscellaneous overview of some key studies from Croy. Um, so, Mariana, you know, we've talked about lenacapir before, right? So, we've talked about this a couple of times, and everybody's probably where it was approved um, most recently in um, in December of uh, of 2022, and I think we did a podcast either late December, early January that covered that uh, early January, 2023. But again, it's for highly shooting experienced patients. And, and basically this is based on the Capella study. So feel free to listen to those previous podcasts and you can take a, you can take a listen to those. Uh, but there was some updated data from Croy 2023, really looking at some of the background regimens. And one of the questions I think a lot of people had is what were patients on in addition to lenacapavir that got suppressed? What were they on? And what was their optimized background regimen? And some of the characteristics of that. And that was the analysis that they presented um, at CROI uh, this year um, to see if there are any differences in efficacy. So overall, the number now, I think it was 82% in the previous version, but now it's 78% uh, of people got to an undetectable viral load. Really, really good numbers for this uh, for this kind of a population. And those of you who don't know, these are really sick patients with not a lot of options. Um, and this was at week 52. But the new data looked at all, all the look at all the drugs in the optimized background regimens and whether you use dolutegavir or boosted darunavir, uh, whether you use fostemsevir or ivalizumab, or, um, and whether or not even if you had insti resistance at baseline, there's really no huge bearing on results. Patients did really well. Um, there were some trends where patients with lower CD4 counts um, and higher viral loads fared a little bit worse, and only 72% and 64% of those people who had lower CD4 counts and higher viral loads for 64%, but still overall patients did, did really well. So that's the kind of story, the, the quick story on, on Capella. Um, many of you may not be aware of this, but there's data for treatment naive patients um, for lenacapavir as well, which is the Calibrate study. Uh, and this has been reviewed in previous podcasts as well, but this is a, an ongoing analysis that now looked at the 80 week data, uh, which is a little bit further on than what we saw in the past. Uh, note that there's no indication right now for treatment naive patients. Again, it's still 
you know, it's it's still being being looked at for that. Um, but there was 182 patients in this study, and they got randomized to to one of four arms. Um, uh, the the first arm, uh, the first two arms, uh, arm arm A and B or one and two, uh, had uh, lenalidopravir sub Q for the first six months uh, with oral FTAF daily, uh, and then at six months, arm one switches the PO uh, portion to oral TAF alone. Uh, and then, um, uh, again, with another uh, injection at six months. And then the second arm actually switched people to oral BIC at, 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 at six months. So again, the question here is basically you're on, you're on triple therapy uh, in, the be- in the very beginning, but after six months, you, you get another shot of, of, uh, of lenacapavir and you get either tafalone uh, in arm one or in arm two, you get, you get uh, oral bictegravir. All right, so that's kind of how, how they're doing the study. So really it's like a kind of like a an in, long acting injectable with one pill a day, you know, is it, what, what's that kind of look like? And then the other two arms of the study were um, um, uh, had lenacapavir with oral FTAF uh, uh, throughout the entire time. And arm four was, was Big Tarby kind of as, as a comparator. Fire loads at baseline were over 200 uh, copies, copies uh, CD4 is over 200 as well at baseline. And so really look at the response rates. The response rates are very good at 80 weeks. And uh, so again, this injectable with, you know, versions of oral therapy looked pretty good. 87% in arm one, 75% of in arm two, 87% in arm three, 92% in arm four were all undetectable. So the best actually was Big Tarby, right? The big, the BF TAF at 92% in arm four. Uh, similar CD4 responses across the arms. There were, there were um, in, in previous studies, they've shown that there were two uh, cases of, of lenacapavir resistance that were reported. And now there was actually a third case at week 80. Very similar results. Uh, the, the, all three of the patients had this K70R and this six in uh, this Q67H uh, in the lenacapavir genome um, for resistance. So, so more to come, Marianne, I think, on this naive study, and also to try to figure out like what PO meds should be should be paired with it. How should it be done? Um, and I also want to make sure that people know that the uh, there's the I think it's Promise One and Promise Two. These are two studies that are being uh, looked at for for using just lenalidopravir alone for HIV prevention. So again, a sub Q every six month injection would be really great to have for 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 prep. So many of you may remember the Nadia study. This was a study that was actually presented in the summertime, um, which looked at dolutegravir based second line regimens. And there was another version of this. This is this is not the Nadia study, but it's called the D2EFT study, the D2F study. So um, uh, basically these are all patients who had failed an NNRTI-based treatment, most X, obviously XUS study, uh, and two arms uh, compared to darunavir ritonavir plus two nukes. Now darunavir ritonavir plus two nucleosides is really kind of the standard of care, um, and that's likely changing or has changed if it hasn't. Uh, but basically, the, the second and third arms were comparing dolutegravir with darunavir ritonavir or dolutegravir plus TDF with either FTC or, or 3TC. All right. So that's actually um, an interesting study. And um, non-inferiority was shown for both dolutegravir regimens, tiny regimens with rates of suppression uh, that were a little bit better with the dolutegravir plus darunavir ritonavir. Um, and it really showed that the dolutegravir plus two nukes uh, works, and despite the fact that most patients would probably likely be resistant to the TDF or, or and FTC TBTC arm, since most of the, most of those are on those with NRTI at failure, no resistance analysis has been done yet. But that is continuing to uh, to be ongoing, and we'll have to see um, we'll have to see what that actually means uh, uh, in in the future for 
um, uh, for some of these, for some of these, some of these, some of these numbers. Um, the other thing I'll just uh, just uh, mention quick is that the um, uh, the resistance analysis, I think, from the Nadia study will help us kind of inform what probably happens in, in this study as well. But again, that's still ongoing. And once that happens, you know, we'll, we'll I'm sure there'll be there'll be another study and then we can we can talk about that once again. John, this is great. How about data on investigational medications for HIV? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, I think we've talked about this as well, Marianne, over the over the last year or so. We talked a lot about aslatrovir. So this is the uh, NRTTI. It's kind of a new class. Uh, and for the past few years, it's been concerned about what we call lymphopenia, uh, which is basically low lymphocyte counts happening in the studies. And many of the studies have been placed on hold. There were two switch studies that actually that used um, that were presented at Croy that used 100 milligrams of deravirine, which is a non-nuke drug, uh, with 0.75 milligrams of aslatrovir. So I want to make sure everybody's aware. There's three doses. It's 2.25, 0.75, and then 0.25. This is the middle dose, the 0.75 milligram. And they presented two studies at Croy. They were both switch studies. One study had a number of different regimens at baseline. I think over half of them are on NSTs, 14% on PIs, and a third run NRTI-based regimens. And they randomized people to either stay on their current regimen or switch to this deravirine, aslatrovir. Non-inferiority was demonstrated, really good numbers, about 95% of people in both arms were undetectable. And then the second study looked at BF-TAF, so basically looking at uh, bactegravir with F-TAF and randomized people to stay on BF-TAF one-to-one or, again, switch to this deravirine, aslatrovir uh, with the aslatrovir 0.75 milligrams. Same story, similar suppression rates, close to 95%. Patients did very well. Sorry. So two switch studies, two different kind of background regimens, but to either switch to switch to slatchavir with the ravarine or else stay on your your your, your previous regimen. So and the issue in both of these studies was low lymphocyte counts, though. Uh, in this door, a slatchavir uh, 0.75 milligram of a slatchavir uh, um, showed that basically. The, the lymphocyte counts were low. T cell counts were, were a little bit different, but again, um, you know, it's really, it's really what everybody cares about is the lymphocyte counts. So on, ongoing studies, actually, we're going to have to use this 100 milligram deravirine with 0.25 milligrams to slash if we're moving forward. So again, I think a lot of these studies are going to be repeated and redone with the, with the lower dose of a slash of and to see what this means for lymphocyte counts. But there was a third analysis from, um, uh, from Dr. Squires from, from Merck, really showed that the 0.25 milligram appears to have counts that is very similar to what we would see with deravirine, 3TC, and tenofovir, which is the, the combination pill that they have available now. So basically, in a slatchavir-free regimen, um, using the slatchavir 0.25 milligrams, comparing that to a slatchavir-free regimen, really showed very similar uh, similar uh, um, similar numbers from a, from a, from a um, uh, from a lymphocyte count standpoint. So that's probably going to be the safest option. So in addition, um, just a couple things. So the 0.25 milligram with uh, deravirine, 100 milligrams is moving forward. Uh, we will see, um, there was a once weekly, I think, alenocapavir, 300 milligrams, which is the capsid inhibitor from the other company. Uh, but, well, with the slatchavir, two milligrams once a week uh, is ongoing as well. So more to come, but I think it's good to see that this med was not completely abandoned and, and Merck, the makers of a slatch of moving forward and trying to get, trying to move this forward and get, hopefully get something, um, something set up that, that will work. Um, and um, the Lenavir, Lenacapir every six months was also uh, studied as well in, in a combination with these BNABs. These are these broadly neutralizing antibodies. And there, there's, there's two BNABs that actually they, look, they looked at in the study. One of them is called uh, teropavimab. 
and the other one is called Zin Lirvamab. So um, I, I just want to tell you that the, the 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 names of these drugs are brutal. It's like it's very much like the the names for some of the monoclonals, the monoclonal antibodies that we use for COVID. But these are broadly neutralizing antibodies that kind of attach to different places uh, on the uh, uh, on the outside of the of the virus and per, per basically prevent uh, prevent uh, uh, you know can can use can be used for treatment. So the teropavimab is called TAB. And the zinlivermab is called Zab, and they they both estimate that over fifty percent of clade V viruses, clade B viruses that are most of the commonly circulating in the United States, would be susceptible to both of these BNABs. So they gave um, basically on day one they gave lenacapavir sub Q, which is two times four hundred sixty three point five milligram sub Q shots with PL lenacapavir um, six hundred milligrams, and then they gave another six hundred milligrams of, of lenacapavir PO on day two. But also on day one, they got they got two infusions, one of TAB and one of ZAB. The TAB was done at 30 mg per kilogram. And then the ZAB, they actually used two doses, either 10 or 30 milligrams. So basically what you're looking at in small numbers of patients, patients that are susceptible to TAB or ZAB, they basically gave them lenacapavir, uh, uh, you know, their, their six-month shot, plus their PO uh, regimen, which, which again is their loading dose on day one and two. And then they gave them on day one, they gave two infusions, one of this um, uh, of this teropavimab and then one of different doses of, uh, of uh, zinlivermab. And basically what they did is they followed, they were supposed to follow these patients for, for a year, but they only wound up doing six months because of some of the issues that they uh, had with the lenacapavir vials and, and it was on clinical hold. So they only presented six months. And really what they showed Again, only 20 patients in each arm, right? Very, or sorry, 20 patients altogether, 10 patients in each arm. 90% in both BNAB arms were suppressed. And um, there was one person in, in the Len Tab Zab 10 milligram, which is the lower dose, failed at week 16. But that patient actually was able to resuppress on previous uh, treatment regimen of, um, they basically on Ropivirine TAF FTC. And then there was another patient in the other arm in, in the, um, the Zir, uh, uh, in the Tiropavimab arm that actually uh, disenrolled uh, early so that he wasn't, that person was not a virologic failure. So basically what you're looking at, 10 patients in, in each arm, uh, nine are suppressed in one, in one arm, nine are suppressed in the other. One person left the study early in the, uh, in the uh, teropavimab arm. And then the uh, zinlirvimab arm, there was one person who actually failed on the lower dose, the, the 10 mg per kilogram and resuppressed uh, pretty quickly uh, within four weeks of, 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 uh, of restarting therapy. It's a really interesting proof of concept, right? You could potentially be giving a sub-Q injection with two days of oral meds and then two infusions on the same day. And out to six months, these patients are suppressed. Now, if this leads to another, you know, a year or two years, this could be really, really, uh, um, uh, I think, you know, um, you know, paradigm changing for, for the field to have drugs that actually would last this long and keep people suppressed. So really, really impressive uh, to see. Um, so we'll have to see what this looks like in the future, whether it's going to be an effective strategy for, for managing patients. John, as we begin to wrap up this series, what else do HIV care providers need to know about CROI 2023? Yeah, so Mariana, finally, uh, just some miscellaneous things. I kind of put a mishmash of things at the end here. Um, uh, some data on four-week regimens for hep C. So many of you may be aware that glicapavir perparenthesphere, so that's an uh, 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 is a um, is a protease inhibitor, and then the perparenthesphere is an S5A inhibitor for hepatitis C. 
And this was data from the Target 3D study. And these patients did very well. Um, there was a small number of patients, I think it was 20, 24 patients or something, very small. They did very well, but only if your viral load was less than 6.5 copies, uh, 6.5 million copies. So this is looking at a, just a four-week regimen. So again, this is really, really ultra short uh, therapy. And there were four failures, uh, and, and all of those patients had viral loads greater than six and a half million. So if you're less than six and a half million, it seemed to work. If you're over six and a half million, all those patients failed. None of them had resistance, though, which is good. Three out of the four were retreated success successfully. Um, I don't think any of those patients, some of them may have actually been co-infected. They did allow that in the study. But again, really looks very good. I think this next study got um, some good press because it was just, there was a corresponding publication in the New England Journal article. This is the patent article um, in, in the February 20th um, uh, New England Journal, looking at eight weeks of TB treatment with bedaquiline, uh, lenezolid, uh, with INH, PSA, and ethambutol. And that was shown to be non-inferior to, to standard six-month six uh, uh, regimens for uh, for for tuberculosis. So again, that's interesting, right? You could potentially just have an eight week regimen. Again, more drugs, but again, an eight week versus a versus a uh, six month uh, regimen would make it would make a big difference here. Um, and then the other thing too, I'll just uh, just round out uh, the 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 uh, the Croy data is the MPOX data. So there was some data that showed really high mortality for people with T cells less than 200, 15% uh, if you were less than 200, 27% mortality if you're less than 100. So overall mortality, if your CD4 count was less than 350, was 25% of the patients uh, in, in this study. And it's, again, it's a big, it's a decent sized look at, at mortality uh, in, in experiences in patients who have HIV co-infection. Some of the also concern was uh, that if um, there was uh MPOX-related iris, so immune reconstitution uh, syndrome, uh, if you start on AV therapy, uh, 12 out of 21 of those patients died, so 57% mortality in those patients who started therapy um, with low CD4 counts while having MPOX. They, some of these patients are actually restarting therapy and have been off treatment. But again, it really, I think, really, I think in my mind, hopefully will make people think like, listen, we have to keep people on therapy, but for patients, if you hear these stories, you know, they, they were restarting therapy and they had, and they had a pretty high mortality rate, just from immune reconstitution uh, with some of the drugs that they, that they were putting on, putting them on for HIV. So again, um, just from a patient standpoint, just make sure you stay on your treatment uh, and make sure you stay undetectable. It's really going to be a key, a key point uh, for a lot of different things, but now it looks like, you know, even for, even for MPOX as well. So probably more to come on MPOX as we move forward uh, in the, in the future. But right now things seem to be pretty, pretty calm from that standpoint. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about some of the top moments from this esteemed conference for listeners who may not have been able to attend. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know.
This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.